Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is keeping count of the coronavirus. We're fortunate to have with us today a leading demographer and epidemiologist, Dr. Sam Clark of The Ohio State University. Dr. Clark's research focuses on the demography of Africa, on fertility and mortality rates, and on improving the statistical tracking of disease in the world today, in part through his involvement in the organization Vital Strategies with former director of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Thomas Friden. Thank you very much for joining us for today's conversation on International Horizons, Sam Clark. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. Appreciate you taking the time. So, I, I want to get into an issue that's troubled me a lot as the coronavirus pandemic has unfolded, and, and it has to do basically with the statistical reporting of what's going on. Uh, I don't know about you, but I often find the reporting of the coronavirus unhelpful in the sense that it tends to rely on absolute numbers that sound big and scary, which in fact, of course, they may be but don't really allow us to compare states in the United States with one another or to compare countries with each other. How do you think the media are doing when it comes to reporting the impact of the pandemic and how could they do better? So I think the issue you just brought up of uh, comparability is, is a key um, detail that the media is often um, gliding over, but I think it results from two competing um, communication interests. One is communicating the overall magnitude of the mortality that's going on. And that requires that you speak about absolute numbers of deaths. And the second one is, is really being able to compare both through time and across space in an adequate way to track the epidemic and get a sense of how one region is doing with respect to another region. And in that case, you really need rates uh, with a reasonable denominator, um, so that so that you can compare um, fairly across um, different times or, or regions, and that's where the media is really, uh, for the most part, I think, um, having a, a challenging experience. And it's also less um, uh, maybe it's it's less juicy, um, and it requires more nuance to explain what you're doing. So yeah, there's a, a whole variety of um, uh, successes and failures with looking at rates. Do you think that they kind of draw on the right people for expertise? I mean, it's sometimes said that Anthony Fauci is a is an outstanding communicator of the kind of situation that we're in and makes it comprehensible to everybody and 
Um, is that, you know, a common kind of phenomenon? Do you think it's true? And is it a common phenomenon? And, and could there be other people? I mean, do they sort of begin to select certain people who are stars in effect and, and ignore other voices? So I've been thinking about the, the way that we communicate the coronavirus um, epidemic to the public. And uh, over the epidemic, I've had a lot of experience with uh, working at a very detailed level to generate new data and understand where the data holes are and provide uh, results to the kinds of people who would do the communicating. So um, I've been doing that in the developing world um, with the WHO and, and the Vital Strategies Project, where we look at uh, civil registration of vital statistics, mortality reporting in general. And in the state of Ohio, I've been working with colleagues at uh, the Ohio State University. And as a group, we've been working with the Ohio Department of Health um, to generate uh, better, um, more clear, and more meaningful data for the state of Ohio, characterizing the, the epidemic here. And what has happened in the Ohio situation is that there is a, a real strong disconnect between um, experts like myself who are uh, working day and night, basically, to generate good data, and the um, administrative layer in the government that is responsible for decision making and um, you know uh, communicating with the public. So I'm I've spent almost all of my time um, you know in the the data generation and model building exercise, and um, we do have interesting results to show. And what we're discovering is that it's very difficult to get the attention of our colleagues um, in the administration who would uh, be in a position to actually do something useful with those results. So this, this issue of communicating is, is really at the top of my mind right now. How do we get it into the right hands and how do we help them uh, generate a uh, useful, uh, constructive message for the public? So to date, I'm... Um, pretty frustrated in, in Ohio and nationally seeing what's going on. The, the whole thing has been politicized in a uh, very non-constructive way. And I think that this has resulted in a, a good swath of the public being both confused and, and misguided. So those are my initial thoughts on that. Right. So what you say it's hard to get the administrative people, the political people, I guess, to listen. What do you mean by that, and why, why do you think that's the case? So I'll give you a very concrete example. We spent about six weeks, um, some colleagues um, at the University of Washington and myself and um, a couple people here at OSU, um, developing an excess death uh, model for the state of Ohio. And uh, the purpose there is to get a sense of how different mortality rates are this year compared to what they would have been at uh, similar points during the year in past years, um, with, the, with the overall um, result being how many deaths are we seeing now that wouldn't have occurred if uh, the situation was normal as defined by the last few years. So excess deaths um, are a great way of looking at the overall effect of the pandemic, both the COVID-19 deaths and all of the deaths that are produced by indirect mechanisms. For instance, people who have um, 
chronic conditions like um, diabetes, um, certain kinds of cancers and so on, who don't go, go into the hospital anymore to get their treatments, high blood pressure, and other things that might be happening um, in the other direction. So reduced traffic, reduced traffic deaths, and so on. So to look at the overall effect, you really have to look at that all-cause mortality. So we spent uh, a great deal of time um, developing a good model, and we delivered our um, first results to the state about a month ago. And since then, we have uh, heard absolutely nothing from them and seen no evidence that, that those set of results were used in, a, in any way whatsoever, much less communicated to the public. And I, I can't talk about the, the actual numbers involved, um, but the results were, were illuminating and I think should have caused people to um, potentially you know, uh, take a good hard look and just absolutely nothing happened. So I think the reason for that is that our, um, our COVID-19 task force here in Ohio uh, was um, a collaboration between the state officials. And that was led uh, very strongly by Amy Acton, who was our uh, director of, uh, of public health here in the state. And uh, she quit around that same time. And I think since then, we just don't have a, um, you know, <laughs> sufficient leadership to really um, engage with things like this. So you kind of hinted at the results, but you didn't really say what they were. Was, I mean, what were the results and what did they, did they, did, did the results perhaps lead to a certain lack of uh, enthusiasm about engaging with them on the part of the people that you're talking about? So I can't, I cannot um, guess what they did in their reaction because they really haven't communicated to me at all, but the results were certainly sobering. Um, and and would have caused most reasonable people to uh, really perk up and pay attention. Um, so I think the fact that they didn't is is really odd. Um, it's either um, it's either that they don't want to confront those possibilities, or the whole thing is sufficiently um, overburdened or. Um, somehow confused about what's going on that they can't act in, in the way that the data would maybe suggest they do. I see. So uh, one of the uh, other reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you're a demographer of Africa and yes. uh, perhaps even principally. And, um, you know, we pay a lot of attention to what's been happening in the United States for obvious reasons and in Europe, uh, perhaps China, but uh, the, what used to be called the third world is, you know, gets less attention. And so I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about your work there. I mean, I know it's basically had to do with trying to improve statistical record keeping around, uh, around excess deaths or, or mortality in any case. Uh, so maybe you could talk about uh, exactly what you're doing out there and how that's going. Yeah. So with respect to the uh, situation in the developing world, what I've been doing over the last few years is focusing on um, trying to give us a better ability to measure the burden of disease, um, because that's really key to uh, identifying and prioritizing public health interventions and also monitoring you know, whatever impact they might have in the future. And the burden of disease is really simple. It basically um, looks at deaths 
and categorizes them by cause and puts those causes into uh, meaningful groupings and then ranks the meaningful groupings by how many um, people have died from each or what fraction of the population uh, dies from each cause. So when you start thinking about that in the developing world context, um, two things immediately crop up. One is that most of the deaths are not registered at all. So the first step would obviously be to know that a death has occurred. And then the second step would be uh, to figure out what caused that death. And so in the second step as well, um, even for the deaths that are registered, uh, most of them do not get a, a cause or, or they don't get a reliable cause. So what I decided to do is focus on the cause part and uh, work on the only feasible method for doing this, which is a, a thing called a verbal autopsy, which is an interview with the caregivers or uh, other people who are around the person who died uh, during the time leading up to death. And in this interview, you elicit uh, basically a description of what happened leading up to the death, um, whether or not the person contacted the, the medical system at all, if there were any diagnoses or test results and things like that. So you have a, an interview that consists of a bunch of um, questions and their answers, and also a narrative um, text, which is an account of uh, what happened in the, in the actual words of the respondent. So the, the idea here is you use that information and essentially do a, a diagnosis after the fact, uh, as well as you can. And traditionally that was done by doctors reading the interview transcript and um, eventually coming to a consensus amongst themselves as to what happened to the person. And, and it works, it kind of works okay. It works well enough to be uh, worth pursuing, but there are lots of things that could be improved. And one of them is the fact that the doctors are a scarce commodity in most of these settings. And it's um, much better for them to be spending their time with living people rather than poring over the records of, of deaths. Uh, so it's, so when you use the doctors, you're, you have a um, opportunity cost kind of issue, which is really significant. You also have a cost issue because you have to pay them and you have a long delay in terms of getting the results. So several groups around the world, including ours, have uh, developed computer algorithms, which are basically computational statistical devices that process those data and come up with likely causes of death uh, in a similar way to the physicians. So our job over the last, um, I don't know, six, seven, eight years has been developing and improving those algorithms, um, working with the World Health Organization on the global standards for this verbal autopsy method, including the both the interview and the um, the instrument itself, the questionnaire, and the, the computational methods. And that's actually how I became involved with Vital Strategies, because they uh, have a program to improve civil registration and vital statistics in general. So both the death registration and the cause of death um, ascertainment. And um, I've been helping uh, with the cause of death part for, for several years now. So that's, that's the background and kind of the, the main thing I've been doing. Um, in terms of COVID-19, what we've done is uh, with the World Health Organization um, Verbal Autopsy Reference Group, we have uh, added new questions to our standard verbal autopsy instrument um, so that we can um, ascertain COVID-19 as a cause now. We're just at the point of wrapping up that process and disseminating the results. And the, the next phase will be um, building all of that into the computer algorithms 
and then getting it actually fielded um, at at various research sites and hopefully uh, various national governments as well. I'll pause there. Okay, great. Um, so that kind of leads into where I wanted to go in any case. And of course, it has to do with the coronavirus and in particular, it's career, if that's the right word, in Africa. Uh, I've seen uh, suggestions to the effect that uh, perhaps Africa won't be so badly hit by the coronavirus because of the age structure of the population. That is to say that it's much younger, certainly, than the European population, but even than the American population. Um, and that, you know, it's not to say lots of people won't get sick, uh, but that they are less likely, in effect, to die. Uh, but of course, one would have to take into consideration, you know, the ability of the healthcare system to handle these people, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder whether that makes any sense as a conjecture or, you know, how you see the, the, the virus, you know, developing in the developing world. So I, I don't have any hard and firm uh, answers to that, but I do have some thoughts. Um, the first one is that the developing world is highly heterogeneous. We have, you know, places um, uh, in Latin America that cover the range from uh, fairly underdeveloped to very developed. Um, we have Africa, which also covers a huge range, and we have, you know, yet again a different situation in parts of Asia. So I'm, I'm going to focus on Africa, which is where I have enough information, I think, to have intuitions about what might go on. And I think the the critical thing to do is to think about the way this virus appears to um, be transmitted um, and its effect on different groups within the population. So we have something which um, uh, maybe probably is uh, airborne. So um, transmission is most efficient when you have people in close proximity and indoors, um, you, especially with, you know, indoor air that doesn't circulate very well um, and uh, populations that don't have access to, to masks. Um, then you have the fact that it affects um, people differently. Old, elderly people get it and die um, in fairly large fractions and younger people get it, but don't appear to die uh, in, in quite so many um, numbers. The problem is then thinking through how people mix in these populations and if you have um, a situation where older and younger people are in close proximity to each other uh, for you know, large periods of time, especially indoors, then you're going to have a situation where there's a high potential of transmission from the younger to the elderly people. And that is what concerns me in the, the African setting. There are um, lots of you know, household uh, living situations that involve uh, people of different generations living together or being in close proximity with each other for uh, periods of the day. And so I think um, there is a chance that the virus will circulate widely and um, in spite of the age structure, uh, will infect a lot of elderly people who are at higher risk. In other words, they won't be protected because they're not in a secluded um, little bubble, you know, living by themselves. Uh, not in contact with the the rest of the population. And here's an, an interesting um, link back to the first topic we discussed, the the issue of, of numbers versus rates. So in terms of 
Um, in terms of rates, things in Africa will probably um, be as bad as they are everywhere else. Um, and in certain uh, very close living situations like slums and in Cape Town and Nairobi uh, might be worse. Um, but the thing is that Africa as a whole has a, a large population. So when you apply even a moderate rate to that large population, you still have a very large number of deaths. And then an added um, issue is that Africa in general uh, will have a less developed uh, way of keeping track of all of this. So the fact uh, that I mentioned earlier where most deaths are unrecorded and most deaths don't have a cause means that it's going to be very difficult to even um, you know, get rudimentary data on the effect of the, the epidemic in many of these settings. So I'm very, very worried about what's going to happen um, in Africa and, and most of the developed world, especially those places where we, we don't even have enough data to know what's going on in, in normal times. Um, and I think that the conditions are right for the epidemic to have a large impact and, uh, and wind up killing a very large number of people. I, I, I'm worried about asking how many you think that's really going to be, but um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, whether you could perhaps put this in a kind of comparative context and compare it to other epidemics that, you know, you're familiar with and uh, give us a sense of um, whether you think well, how bad is this going to be, I guess, is the question. So I think the short answer is really bad. Um, um, so the other big epidemics that have affected Africa in an unusual way in the past few decades are Ebola and uh, HIV. Um, and then there are other things which, which affect some parts of Africa all the time. But in, in terms of a comparison to Ebola, I would say this is, has the potential to be much worse. And in terms of its comparison to HIV, I suspect um, it's hard to say because HIV has a cumulative effect over many decades and has killed many people. Um, this pandemic is likely um, to uh, go through its um, course and burn out in a year or two. And it's hard to know if, if the cumulative number of deaths as a result of that will be you know, comparable more or less than, than HIV. So it depends on how you're doing the comparison. Are you doing it in a, in a given year, you know, or, um, or over time, a cumulative impact, but um, it's going to be very bad. I'm absolutely sure that it's going to be very bad. Uh, it's um, the question is, will the, um, will the African countries and the, international system at large that plays a large, you know, plays a significant role in um, provision of health interventions there, if together they will be able to um, mitigate it uh, to an extent um, or not. And that, that I think is the big question. We need the information and we need a mitigation strategy. And I haven't seen either of those um, really being highlighted yet. How do you think that's likely to happen insofar as it does happen? I mean, obviously, the United States has uh, 
rattled its saber at the WHO, and that seems rather unhelpful at the moment. Um, but I guess, yeah. you know, what are the kind of instruments and, and institutions out there that might, you know, carry out or at least develop the strategy that you're talking about? So I think in, in most African countries, the Ministry of Health has to develop its own strategy. And I think the African CDC, as a multilateral organization, will probably play a, a leadership role in this. Um, and I think that that's extremely good. Um, and, and I know I have lots of colleagues in Africa who are extremely capable and um, can put together a strategy. Again, I think it's similar to the situation in the United States. Uh, I mean, are we going to have government um, officials, polit politicians, who actually listen to and respect the epidemiological experts, or aren't we? I think it's going to hinge on that. Um, and even in the best case scenario where the politicians, the governments um, uh, cooperate and get in line and um, you know, both listen to and then attempt to implement a mitigation strategy, the, resource, the resources necessary to do that are again, of course, um, limited. They're limited here in the United States um, and they're even more limited in, in developing countries. So I think even in the best case scenario, where a strategy was developed and um, an implementation was attempted, um, it's not going to be optimal or <laughs> perfect in any sense of the word, given all of the constraints that um, exist. But I'm not sure we're even going to get through the first step because we failed to get through the first step, you know, even in highly developed places like the U.S. and in developing countries that are um, you know, well along the way toward toward being developed, like Brazil. Um, so I guess political leadership really is probably the the absolute key here, um, and we'll see what happens. Well, we will indeed. Uh, but of course, it's certainly been noticed by lots of people that the current administration in the U.S. has arguably politicized the science, you know, more as much, you know, more than anyone ever in the past. And that suggests that the only real way out of this is to replace the current political leadership in the United States. Um, I mean, is there any, any hope, you know, if, if Donald Trump is reelected, that this can be resolved? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my personal opinion is that uh, it will be difficult to resolve this uh, if Donald Trump were to be reelected. Uh, I'm worried about that. Right. Well, I share that worry. Uh, so, you know, another thing that occurs to me is the uh, discussion of a vaccine. We've just in the last couple of days been some more promising results coming out of the U.S., out of the U.K., out of China, uh, about, you know, vaccines. And it's often said that, you know, this is not going to be resolved until there's a, a vaccine. But uh, as many people have pointed out, there are also going to probably be many. If there's any vaccine, there's probably going to be a number of them. Uh, and there aren't enough of them. There won't, you know, at least initially be enough for all of the people who need them with eight plus billion people on the planet. Um, and so I wonder whether there aren't other, you know, you talked about mitigation. Uh, these are the non famous non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, uh, 
But, uh, you know, what about other, you know, remdesivir and dexamethasone and other drugs that seem to moderate the course of the, the disease and, you know, finding more uh, medicines like that? I mean, how do you see the kind of questions of treatment, cure, et cetera, in terms of the way this is all going to play out? So I think um, this is really interesting. The, this question has to be viewed from a global perspective, the the entire globe is infected. So um, searching for a way to really eliminate this pandemic is probably not the idea. Um, what we have to do is slow it down, contain it, and live with it for quite a long time. Um, and I think the, the strategy in that case needs to be everything possible. So um, drugs that are able to improve the outlook for infected people, um, blunt the, the most harmful effects. You know, we have to explore, you know, and use all of them. And, it, you know, I think we are making good progress there. Vaccines definitely need to um, develop them. But the, the vaccine question to me is a little frustrating because, you know, vaccines um, are difficult to uh, identify. Uh, they're very difficult to certify. So typically it takes years to get a vaccine certified by the FDA and for good reason. Um, they're highly biologically active agents and they can kill you. They can cause allergic reactions that kill people and they can do that pretty reliably uh, if you're not careful. So you want to have a, you know, a vaccine that is effective and specific for the condition you're interested in and really above all is safe so that when you give it to people, they don't get sick or die. Uh, so that takes time and you have to be careful. And the last thing you want to do is put a vaccine out there, uh, which has all the negative properties, um, you know, it doesn't really work uh, and or is harmful to people. You know, that would result in an even further diminishing of the public trust in, in science and biomedicine and, you know, I think politics around this altogether. So, I'm worried about the vaccine. I'm worried about the amount of um, hope that people are staking to it. And I'm worried that we're going to make a mistake uh, in terms of bringing one out too quickly. But putting those those things aside, uh, obviously, uh, a vaccine is a very powerful tool in the overall mitigation strategy. Um, and if we did have a really good vaccine, uh, the next step would be producing it and distributing it. And that's where the global scale comes back in. Uh, we can't really treat this epidemic as a, uh, a national issue. We really have to treat it as a global issue because um, really eliminating it is going to have to be done on a global scale unless we want to lock down international travel and international trade you know, from here to the duration. So even with a good vaccine, there's a huge and logistical undertaking in terms of producing sufficient quantities and distributing it and making sure that people outside of the rich countries, you know, have enough of an access to it so that we eventually tamp down the, the whole pandemic globally and don't just, you know, have a situation where we keep getting reinfected from reservoirs that are, you know, sitting somewhere else. So that's, so, yeah. So how do you think that uh, problem is going to be addressed or resolved. I mean, many people have pointed to the ways in which this set of developments has pushed a process of, you know, renationalization or deglobalization. 
uh, yeah. which does not, you know, foretell a kind of uh, empathy towards those in other parts of the world who may be more vulnerable, may be suffering more. Uh, I mean, how is this going to actually get uh, sorted out? Yeah, it's a it's a good question because, um, like you said, I think we have put ourselves on a course of potentially um, engaging less with the rest of the world, uh, and I'm not really. You know, I have a variety of thoughts about that. Um, in, in one sense, what we've been doing roughly since the Second World War is um, stitching the world together economically and socially and uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, which are very useful, um, except for a situation like this, uh, where the, the interconnections are actually the route through which the, the disease is spread. Um, so I think that to, to implement anything on that scale, we have to cooperate, um, internationally mm -hmm. and multilateral, uh, multilateral organizations like the WHO and the UN, uh, should play a prominent role in helping us do that. But our current political situation appears to be making it more difficult, um, to implement organization at that scale. So I'm not I'm not hopeful. Um, I'm not very hopeful about um, our ability to do that in the short term, especially with the the current administration we have in the United States, and the fact that in general the the WHO and UN are underfunded organizations. Um, they, they they really don't have a lot of resources. They are very efficient in terms of roping in outside expertise and outside. Um, help. In fact, they basically run that way. So people like uh, like myself and many of my colleagues um, actually conduct a lot of the work, which is done by by these organizations. But we're not paid for it. Um, so all of that would need to happen on a on a bigger scale and quite rapidly. Um, but we seem to be moving in the other direction. Alas, we do, uh, and those are not the most encouraging thoughts to end on. But uh, I want to do—I do, do want to wrap this up and say that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Dr. Sam Clark of Ohio State University for sharing his insights about measuring the coronavirus pandemic in the United States and around the world, and about the likely future that faces us in the face of the pandemic. I also want to thank Christo Voinov for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying see you next time on International Horizons.